I have right there a, a set of blueprints, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I want to talk about, as it's, it's been uh, brought up and, and introduced, uh, the importance of God's plan and God's design uh, with you this weekend. And Lord willing, I want us to spend time together and to emphasize uh, and take notice of the fact, first and foremost, that God has a plan. He has a design. And that would apply in many things. He has a plan and design for your life. He has a plan and a design for the church. And that's what we're going to uh, focus on primarily uh, this weekend. But we're going to talk about that tonight in the most general terms um, and find these truths uh, to apply in all areas of life. But specifically when it comes to God's plan and design for the church, our goal this weekend would be to increase your confidence and your conviction in God's plan for the church. As you uh, read the scripture reading this evening, what came to your mind? When you read those verses, did you think of that as something that was descriptive of you and your life? Um, this evening, as we talk about God's plan and God's way for the church, a lot of times in life, it would be nice and it would be simple if every fork in the road that we came to had this sign sitting in it, right? If we just knew as plain as day which way we needed to go. Which decision that we need to make? What does God want me to do right now? And it'd be nice to have that sort, sort of, of guidance available. And the reality is, is that a lot of times that we do, and we just we don't follow it. We don't. Sometimes we're ignorant of it. Sometimes we we come to know it and we've forgotten it. We don't apply. It. We don't recognize that it applies. And so we want to think about the importance of doing things God's way. God's way of doing things is the best way to do that. And I think that I'd be uh, fairly uh, simple to get everyone's agreement on that this evening. I don't think you would probably be here if you didn't agree with that statement. And so we start off somewhere that we can all agree. God's way of doing things is the best. A lot of times people don't realize that God has a way of doing things. They don't think about God's plan. This is a set of blueprints. I don't know if everyone is familiar with what blueprints are. Um, essentially, it's the plan. It's the evidence. It's, it's the drawing. It's the engineering, the architecture part. It's, it shows that there's a plan to build something. Now, sometimes plans are, blueprints are for residential structures. Sometimes they're for industrial uh, items and, and things of various nature. There can be blueprints for any type of, of thing or anything that we might assemble and build. But the idea would be the same, that there is a plan, a layout, for building this object, this structure, this house, whatever that is. God has a plan. God has had a plan. And we're going to look at that. The scripture reading tonight, All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. I want you to think about tonight, and Lord willing, this weekend and the beginning of next week, how you represent Christ and His church. If the subject of church comes up in a discussion and you have an opportunity, how do you present the church? They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Would that be descriptive of the way that you present the church? I think of, as it was mentioned in the prayer this evening, I think of a lot of times growing up, maybe the subject of church would come up where somebody would say, well, where do you go to church? And I might look down at the ground and, and kick the rocks. I, I've never been a big fan of 
getting up in front of people like I am tonight and, and being and, and talking and uh, you can probably tell that's not real natural for me but I think you know I think of things in conversations that I might have had in times past and said well you know well we don't have this and we don't well we don't have that or the other and you can fill in the blank with whatever you want but a lot of times members of the church take the church, and they compare it to some other organization or institution in the world and make that the standard, and then unknowingly or unintentionally in their presentation of the church make it seem like it's some sort of deficient organization that just doesn't quite have all the bells and whistles, but, you know, we're few in number, but at least we don't do very much. Now, what is, what is, the, what is your presentation of the church? What does it mean? Is it something that is powerful when you present it? Is it something that people need? Is it something that matters? Or is this just uh, items of opinion? <coughs> thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. So the things that we talk about, when we look at God's plan for the church, we need to understand that His plan is not of a nature that has an expiration date. It's not something that's going to be outdated at some point, which is an idea that a lot of people seem to have. That if it's not new, it must not be good. When we think about the church, we should give a lot of thought to how we present it in our actions, in our barred language, in our speech, and uh, of great importance in our life, the way that we live. Realize that we're ambassadors for Christ whether you intend to be or not, whether you consciously think about that day to day or not, you are. And you go out in this world and you represent Christ and His church. If you're a member of His church, you do. You're a representative of that kingdom. When we talk about doing things God's way, I want to start by noticing that doing things God's way is the way of faith. In the religious world today, a lot of people have a different idea of what faith is. Faith, you say one thing and you mean something and, and somebody else hears it and they mean, it means something else to them in their mind. And so it's necessary, therefore, that we look at what the Scripture means when it uses this word faith. What does it mean to have faith? How do I know if I have faith or not? In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 1, also I might note up here, uh, that's New King James Version, my typical mode of operation is most of my scriptures are presented in the King James Version. I found that to be the most common pew Bible in the places that I go. And so most of my scriptures are in the King James Version. If they're not, I have them noted some other way. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, God bless you and encourage you to do that. If you'd like to follow along up here on the screen, well, hopefully we can do that as well. I always reserve the right to maybe throw some bonus material in there. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I, I didn't understand that verse for a lot of years. I misapplied it a lot of times. I, I taught it and I, I said, faith is evidence. Faith is the evidence. And so faith shows other people. Well, that's not what it says. What does the verse mean? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Another translation, uh, Young's literal translation, uses a couple of words that kind of jumped out to me. It says, faith is confidence and conviction. Those are the two words it uses. As opposed to substance and evidence, it uses the words confidence and conviction. 
Faith is confidence and conviction. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in God's plan? Do you believe that God had a plan for the church? Do you believe that He has a plan for the church today? Do you believe that that matters? Do you believe that it's important, that it's significant? <clears throat> confidence and conviction. If you go down to verse number 6, he says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. In the absence of faith, it's impossible to please God. Confidence and conviction. How does that show? Are you confident and convicted that God has a plan for the church? You say, well, I'm confident. Are you convicted of it? If you're convicted of that, then it will change the way that you live. Notice what he says here. Without faith, in the absence of that confidence and conviction, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say that it's difficult to please God in the absence of confidence and conviction. It says that it is impossible to please Him. We have to be confident and convicted. Now that's different than arrogance. That's different than pride. In fact, it demands humility. Because what it demands is that I realize and accept that God has a plan. And that's a plan that's to be followed. Because not only does an individual have to be confident and convicted that God exists, that He has a plan, but that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What kind of God is He? That He's a God that has a plan, a God that desires to be sought out, and a God that will ultimately reward those that diligently seek Him, that put effort into seeking Him out. So what does that mean? If I believe that God has a plan, if He has a blueprint for my life, for the church in particular, then, <coughs> pardon me, then that blueprint becomes very important, doesn't it? And I can roll that out, and I'm not going to this evening, I'm not going to roll this scroll out, but for the purpose of illustration, we one of the things that we need to understand, and we'll see in our Scripture, is that in Old Testament times, the plan hadn't been revealed yet. It was still rolled up, if you will, in its uh, format, maybe a little bit of trade secret, if you will, if you want to think about that. It wasn't time for the plan to be revealed yet. And so, in the New Testament, we, talk, we read about a mystery and things like that, with something being revealed. And some of that plan wasn't revealed until time was right. So we need to understand that though the plan had not yet been revealed at certain times of the Scripture, that it always existed. It was always there. The blueprint was there, what the Scripture teaches, before the foundation of the earth. That's the blueprint for the church. Many people that identify as Christians today have the concept that uh, the church was an afterthought. That, it was, that, that something came along that God wasn't expecting and He had to have a plan B. And they don't understand a simple teaching of the Scripture that that's not the case. When we are confident and convicted that God has a plan, that He has a purpose for our lives and for the church, then that leads us in a certain direction. That leads us, a person that is confident and convicted that God rewards those that diligently seek Him, therefore is compelled to diligently seek Him. It produces obedience. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 9, speaking of Christ, it says, "...in being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him." When we seek out God's way, when we live from the standpoint, from the foundation that God's way is best, it compels us in a direction of obedience. It produces humility. 
it produces a, a requirement within us to seek out God's plan. What does God say about this? How does God want this structure to be built? At this stage in the planning, at this stage in construction, what should I be doing? I should be someone that is following the instructions that God has given. And a few chapters later, back to Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And I think this shows a great connection and in the inseparable nature of faith and obedience. Of true, living, biblical faith and obedience. By faith, Abraham, when he was called out, what did he do? He went out. Does that seem overly simple to you? But yet so many people miss that. What did he do? He obeyed. He obeyed God. God said, come out. And he obeyed God. Notice something about this. There would be an insurmountable obstacle to many people. Not knowing where he was going. How many people would do that? How many people have that kind of faith? Okay, oh, okay. But first you've got to tell me where I'm going. I need to know what the end of the thing is. I need to know where you're calling me to. I need to... And Abraham was given certain promises. But he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know the end of the thing from the beginning. But he believed in a God that did. He believed in a God that did. So when he was called out, he went out. And he patterned and he showed us that obedience. And as what the Scripture says or identifies as the father of the faithful, that's the kind of faith that we ought to have. And I want you to take note of this idea of not knowing where he went. And ask yourself, are you an obedient child of God? Are you the kind of faithful individual that Abraham was? We talk about the church. Someone says, well, what difference does this make? And we, Again, we're not getting into specific application just yet. But maybe we're discussing something. How, how should the church do this? How should we organize the church in this way? What, what should we do in this certain activity or what should we not do? And someone might bring the question, of what difference does it make if we do it this way or if we do it that way? I'll tell you the answer, one of the answers to that question is, I don't know. I don't know the end of the thing from the beginning. Do you always know the end of the thing from the beginning? It's a, it's a difficult uh, challenge. But God knows the end of the thing from the beginning. Abraham, when he was called out, went out. Look what Jesus said in John 14 and verse number 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. We talk about the necessity of obedience to God. God's way being best. And seeking out God's way as a way of obedience. Seeking out obedience to God is what it means to love God. It's inseparable from the concept of loving God. And I talk to some people that get upset about the necessity of this idea of obedience being required to be saved. Though we just read it in plain language from the Scripture that He's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him, they, they get caught up in their mind. And people twist and wrangle and they take Scriptures like that we're not saved by works. And they, they bind that up into this idea that Obedience is separate from salvation 
Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. What does it mean to love Christ? Well, it's evidenced in obedience. In 1 John 5, verse number 3, <coughs> the Scripture says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And so it's important that we obey God. That's how we show our love for God. I have four children. I like to hear my daughter, Macy, I like to hear her say, Daddy, I love you. Makes me smile. But you know, if she says that after a day of disobedience, it doesn't make me smile. What about you? <clears throat> would you spend the day, would you spend the week in disobedience and then say, Father, I love you. What pleases God? What pleases you as a parent? If you love me, keep my commandments. Matthew 22, verse number 37. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 37, Ye shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first great, first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And when we look at the connection of love, I appreciate that. I'm, I don't know why, but I'm trying to go into a coffin fit here. So <clears throat> we look at the nature of the law that we have from God. And we do have a law from God today. And the nature of that law hangs on this principle of love. What does it mean to love God? Does that mean I get to make up my concept of what loving God is? And apply that in all the scriptures? Or do I need to take what God's concept of love is and apply that to my life and adapt my concept of love to what the scripture teaches as we've noticed in very plain language this evening and walk in the way of love and live in a way that shows love toward God. That I show respect for His plan and for His purpose. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we see that where the rubber meets the road, when it comes down to our service to God, is that being a doer of God's Word, seeking out obedience to God, being confident and convicted of God's way, of His plan, and all of these things connect. Love, faith, obedience. And they produce... Someone who is a doer of God's Word, if you will. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What was All the law hung on this concept of love. Love thy neighbor as thyself. So when you live in a way that's consistent with how God defines love, you're a keeper of His law. You're fulfilling His law. So we need to seek out this way of love. When we do things God's way, it's a way of simplicity. And we have a little bit longer reading here, but I want you to follow with me, if you will, <coughs> as we think about this passage, because this is a big part of the basis for the, the continuation of our study through the weekend. He says, For this reason, 
I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, I'm, I'm jumping back and forth, by which when you read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. <clears throat> which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. I know I messed it up. We can see the point of the scripture and the significance of this concept that there was something that wasn't revealed in other ages that the Apostle Paul had revealed, had written down. And what did he say about it? He said, for 90% of you, this is above you. You'll never be able to figure it out. But no, he said, when you read, you can understand my knowledge and the mystery. So I have explained to you what was previously rolled up and not revealed, he's opened up the blueprints for the church and laid them out. He said, yeah, invite you. Come look at this. And I work sometimes in a, in a construction industry or with, a, with and for a plumber, and so a lot of times we get into sessions like that where a builder comes and he rolls out the blueprints. He says, come here, I want to talk to you about this. And we, get to, we start seeing the plan, and this is where we want, and this is what we need, and how are we going to make all these things work together. This... It's been laid out and revealed. And what's the end of it? Fellow heirs, the same body. The reference here is God's plan for the church. The language that's used is you, if you read the whole of Ephesians, you understand the context of Ephesians, he talks about the eternal purpose of God. That the church comes to this point according to the eternal purpose, according to a blueprint that existed before time began. And God has now revealed that and rolled that out, and He's made His plan and His purpose for the church known. And if we're confident and convicted that that existed before time began, and that God is a reward of those that diligently seek Him, what kind of God is He? That's the kind of God He is. He's the kind of God that can see the end of the thing from the beginning. And this is important, because this is where you need to recognize humility and the temptation that each of us have for pride. Because we say, what's it going to hurt if we change this up a little? What's it going to hurt if we modify this a little? I bet you, you know what, I bet I could roll out Jeremy's plans here. And I'd say, oh, these, are, these are decent plans, Jeremy. But, you know, what would be better is if we move this over here and rearrange this over here. Now, knowing what field he's in, I can tell you this. I'm completely ignorant of it. This looked like a valve when I peeked at it. I, I, don't, I don't even know. It looks like a bunch of controls or something. I bet if I did that, that Jeremy would be able to come along and say, now Clint, what you don't understand is if you do that, you're going to have a train wreck on your hands. I can do that in some areas. I can look at some uh, <coughs> construction projects that people have started off on and say, that's, that's not going to work. I can walk into a construction project and, and sometimes I can, I can say, well, this looks like a well-oiled machine. This, is, this looks like a plan that's, that's being executed smoothly and go well. And I can walk into other situations and go, do they even have a plan? Does anybody know what they're doing here? 
Because there's some things that are just a disaster like that. I can't see the end of the thing from the beginning, can you? Answer that question when you think about, what's it going to hurt if we do this? Know that you can't see the end of the thing from the beginning. I want to give you an illustration of how terrible I am at this. When Levi was a little guy, and Levi's my oldest and he's 15 now, so he's catching up on me. But when he was somewhere in here, I had this masterful plan. We're at a golden corral, and he sees this Superman action figure inside one of those little crane machines. You know what I'm talking about? With the little claw. And he said, Dad, I want that Superman. I said, this is a chance for me to be a good parent. I'm going to teach my son a lesson. I say, son, these machines are designed to take your money and give you nothing back. So I'm going to teach my son a lesson. Don't waste your money on these dumb machines. They just take your money and you don't get anything for it. And so, come here. This is worth a dollar to teach my son this lesson. So I put my dollar in, and Superman sits in the middle of this pile of toys buried up to his waist. Anybody who's ever played the claw game knows that's not happening. Superman's not coming out, right? And lo and behold, I drop the claw over Superman, and the claw snatches Superman up and digs him out of all those other toys and brings him right over to the bucket and drops him right down the hole. Plan failed. Because now i got my second son going, Dad, what are you getting for me? Like, no! No, no, no! Let's go. We're getting out of here. Plan failed. See, I thought I had it all figured out. This was so simple. I can teach my son not to waste his money on these dumb little machines. And instead, he gets the complete wrong lesson. Dad can do anything. No. You know, I kind of like for him to think that, but no. Because someday they're going to figure out that I can't. Then they're going to be disappointed. So they think, they might as well just understand up front, I'm going to mess up. I don't have all the answers. Those types of things. So when we make a little adjustment to God's plan, what's the harm? I may not be able to tell you that. And understand this, when you talk about the church with people, and someone says, well, what's the harm in doing it this way? Maybe there's no revelation from God about that. Maybe we're talking about something... It really doesn't matter because He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if it matters, we've got information. Just because we haven't found it doesn't mean the information doesn't exist. But He's given us all things that pertain to life and God. Now if He's revealed something and the question is, what's it going to hurt? I don't have to know the answer to that to know it's not as good as God's plan. Whatever God's plan is, is the best because God can see the end of the thing from the beginning and bring it to pass. That's what Isaiah said. The prophet Isaiah, that was a message that he had from God to the children of Israel. He said, find a God like me who is able to declare the end of the thing from the beginning and bring it to pass. That was God's challenge. It can't be done. You can't do it. I can't do it. So remember that the simplicity that we find in God's Word might be Something that's of subtle nature. And sometimes things are so simple we just gloss right over them and we, we don't put enough importance on them. And I think we're going to see that as the case of some of the points that we talk about later in this week. You go, that's right there, it's plain as day. I, I don't really see why we need to talk. Some people have taken and said, what's the harm in doing it this way? And I think after years of experimentation, we can see some things that might be the harm. But the bottom line is, I don't have to know that and I don't have to be able to explain all the harm to know if it's a deviation from God's plan, if it's not by the blueprints, then it's not as good as God's plan.
I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And here's the danger of the craftiness of Satan that's being referenced here. The terminology is all the same. Right? We're not, we're not, they're not changing the names. All that terminology, all that vocabulary is the same. They've just changed the meanings of all those things. But the language is all. Another Jesus? What other Jesus? There's not another Jesus. But if you change the Jesus of the Bible into the Jesus of your imagination, you'll become a preacher of another Jesus. A teacher of another Jesus. And that's the subtle... The, the fear here was a corruption from the simplicity that's in Christ. So God's plan simple. And it can become corrupted. Doesn't God want peace? Doesn't He want unity? Doesn't He want everyone to just get along? God wants peace. But God also told us in very plain language that there would be many that wouldn't seek after that. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. When there is chaos and disorder and disorganization, you can be confident of one thing. That wasn't in the plans. Somebody left off the plans somewhere. Somebody missed something in the plans. Some people do it intentionally. Some people do it in ignorance. Some people do it because they're following somebody else that did it in ignorance. And there's lots of scenarios there. But it all goes back to the same place that God is not the author of confusion. In John 17, 20 says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so as Jesus prays for the apostles, he says that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And <clears throat> Now, I, I missed that just a little bit. I don't know how many of you caught that. Jesus prayed for the apostles, and who else did he pray for? He prayed for everyone that would believe on him through their word. And so Jesus, at this point in time, prays for you and I today. In a desire for unity. Those that believe on Christ through their word. We're reading their words tonight. And those words have helped create faith in us. And Jesus desired unity amongst his followers. How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen if everybody starts printing off their own set of blueprints? It's impossible. But if everyone who follows Christ will go, there's only one set of blueprints, then it's possible. Then it becomes something that's feasible. And when we seek God, we should seek peace. We should seek unity. And it should be our goal. James said the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make peace. And God is the author of peace. Doing things God's way is the way of hope. It was mentioned in the prayer this evening that we might overcome our timidness. I want to notice something that a statement that the Apostle Paul makes here in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 20. He says, According to my earnest expectation 
and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. <clears throat> doing things God's way in the relationship of hope. And what hope provides in doing things God's way. Apostle Paul says that according to this earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing he'll be ashamed. That earnest expectation and hope, those terms are defined as uh, an intense anticipation and an expectation. So those are the concepts that are being described here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. So it's the idea of, I really, really want this to happen. That's kind of like making a wish when you blow out the candles on the birthday cake, right? I really, really want a pony. But, you know, when you're little and you really, really want a pony or whatever it might be, you've got this desire, this anticipation. But... As you grow up a little bit, you don't really expect to get a pony, do you? What's an expectation? It's not a wish. It's not some fleeting desire that you, oh, I wish I would win the lottery. And I'm not, I don't expect to win the lottery because I never buy lottery tickets. So it's not going to happen. So I don't have any expectation of winning the lottery. <clears throat> expectation means something that's going to happen. Hope produces boldness. You expect Christ to come back someday and be the inspector of the building. You know, whatever industry it might be in or, or structure it might be, typically there's somebody that's going to come along with a clipboard, right? And, and check to see that things have been done the right way. Are you confident and convicted? Do you expect Him to come back and to return. And is that making a difference in the way that you live, in the way that you present the church, in the way that you talk about the church when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're in your home with your children? Does God's plan matter? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone that has this hope, what's the hope? It's an expectation of Jesus coming back, of seeing Him like He is of being known as, as you're known of Him. All these things. He says, we don't know what we're going to be like yet. We can't see the end of the thing from the beginning. But God can. He knows what we're going to be like. And He reveals enough for us to know something and the important lesson of this verse, the application that I want to make tonight. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. We talk about doing things God's way and God's way being the best one. That applies to all of your life. And it applies to the church. The way that it's purposed and organized and built and the way the Lord intended for that to be done. Do you have a confidence and conviction that God's way is the best? What does that mean? What does that mean when it comes to the church? What if you either in ignorance or rebellion opened up God's blueprints for the church 
and you said, you know what, this, this is great and everything, Lord, but I'd really like to see this room expanded a little bit. And these items moved over here to the side and a little bit more attention given to this. What does that flow from? Who would, who would look at God's blueprints for His church and make a statement even remotely similar to that? How would you feel about that if somebody did that? So let's look at God's plan, eternal purpose for the church. And somebody came along and started talking about how they like to change it up. I feel real uneasy about that. I hope that you would too. I hope that you realize that God's got a plan for the church. I hope that you're confident and convicted that His way is the best. And that that bleeds over into your life so that when you talk about the church, you don't present it as some sort of deficient organization that just doesn't have all the bells and whistles that everybody else has, but that you present it as a glorious kingdom. A powerful kingdom. That was designed in heaven. The initial phases of its construction were overseen by Jesus Christ Himself. That payment was made by the only one who could make payment. When Jesus shed His blood, Scripture says He purchased the church with His own blood. He designed it, planned it, laid the foundation, paid the price, and He builds on it every day that the Gospel is preached. Every day that someone expects earnestly to see Him as He is at the end and to be judged for all of eternity and they purify Himself as He is pure. It makes a difference in the way they live and the way they talk. And yet sometimes, because of the world around us, we become timid and we change our approach and how we talk about the church. As we begin to wrap up this evening, I want to notice one last point on doing things God's way, that it's the way of wisdom. In Psalms 104, verse number 24, it says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. How manifold are thy works! <clears throat> you know, when you roll out a, a residential set of blueprints, there's lots of pages. One page be for the foundation, one page for the plumbing, one page for the electrical. Each layer has a designer and one who will execute that design. Everything that God does, He does in wisdom. He didn't do anything hastily because He wanted to clock out at five. And so He, he slopped the plans together at the last minute. I've run into that a little bit before on residential work. But you can be confident that that's not the case with God's plans. Everything that He's ever done, He's done in wisdom. A wisdom that's so far above yours and mine that words can't even express that. In Romans 11, verse number 33, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. What difference does it make? I may not know. I may be able to tell you it makes a bad difference. But I can tell you this tonight with confidence and conviction about any variation from God's blueprints. It's a downgrade. Plain and simple. I can tell you that with confidence and conviction. It's not as good as the original. In Matthew chapter 7, verse number 22, 
I'd like for you to keep these words in your heart and your thoughts and your mind as you, we go through the weekend, Lord willing. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, on the job side, on the construction side, the blueprint's the law. And if you do things by the law, by the blueprint, then whatever field you're in, whether you're the electrician or the plumber or the framer or the painter or whatever field you do, you can say, well, I did it by the plan. And you're covered. But if you made your own plans, you're in trouble. When the one who bought the property, when the one who oversees, when the one who made the plans shows up. You've got some answering and explaining to do. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man that built his house on a rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And that's what's going to happen to the building that's not God's building. To the ones who have changed the blueprints and built great structures in His name to present to Him, to say, Lord, look what we've done. What's he going to say? What's his reply going to be? We don't have to speculate on this subject. Jesus told us. He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You that were so arrogant that you made your own set of plans and threw mine off to the side and did whatever you wanted. So the path of wisdom is follow God's plan. Let's do what God says to do. Are we looking for God's way? Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be up unto you. For everyone that asks receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And so, it's about looking for God's plan. Some of the things that may seem simple, some of the things that you might say, well, I've heard people say, when we talk about the organization and the structure of the church and things of that nature, I've heard people say, well, I don't think that matters. Well, if it doesn't matter, then that's great. But what if it does matter? And you think it doesn't matter? Who, who wins there? The answer is God does. If God said it, then it matters. That's not complicated. Jeremiah 29, 13, Ye shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. When you read, you can understand. And if that's your goal is to please God, if that's your goal is to say, what do the blueprints say? How do we need to do? Then you'll find when you seek Him with all your heart. Maybe when you begin that search and that endeavor and you begin inspecting the building that you're working on, you'll see that you have knowingly or unknowingly started a remodeling project. Everyone that has this hope in Him purifies himself even as he's pure. So it may be that you need to tear some things down and you need to get them built the way that the blueprints say to build them. It may be 
slight variations, maybe big things. But what comes down to and what matters and what's going to determine whether or not you're going to do that and you're willing to do that is whether or not you're truly seeking God with all of your heart or if there's something else that's driving you. And so when it comes down to everyday living and the way that you live your life, are you seeking Him with all your heart? When it comes down to the church and your thoughts and your views and how you discuss the church with other people, it's going to come down to what's in your heart and whether or not you have the confidence and the conviction to seek after God and do things God's way and to, to speak of the glorious majesty of His kingdom and to share with others how important God's plan is and how far above anything that man could ever devise God's way is. God's way is the best. We can say that in the superlative way, the most that our language can possibly express. God's way is the very best way. And any variation from that is a dim way. It's a step away from the very best way. So let's increase together this weekend our confidence and conviction in that. That God's way is the best. That it might produce in us more wisdom. Simply hearing the words of Christ and doing them. That we might grow in hope. That expectation of seeing Christ as He is. And that that hope might produce in us the boldness that we need to talk about the glorious majesty of God's kingdom. That it might help us understand the simplicity that's in Christ and help us cut through the fog of all the deception that's out in the world. That we might grow in love for one another and love for God. That we might seek out obedience on all of that based on our faith in God's Word. Confidence and conviction that His way is the very best. The lesson yours this evening, if you're here tonight and you're subject to the Gospel call, perhaps you've been taught the Gospel of Jesus and you know that you need to obey it. There's no other plan for salvation. There's God's way and then there's somebody else's. And you can fill in the blank. Maybe it's yours. But God's way is the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but mine. If you need to obey Christ in baptism, we would encourage you to do that. If you've done that, and your life isn't what it ought to be, perhaps you need prayers of the church for strength or encouragement. If you're present tonight and you have a spiritual need that you, that the church can assist you with, please let that be known behind the seat on one of those front pews while together we stand and sing the songs.